The real lessons are learned from failure. We follow this theme leading into episode five of this podcast, where we interview successful entrepreneurs from around the world on the worst deals they've ever been a part of. Welcome to the Worst Deal Ever podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vicky Virtual Receptionist. We make you look good on the phone. We are also sponsored by Kara Virtual Assistance. You need stuff done? Let Kara help. For more information about Vicky Virtual and Kara Virtual, please visit the links provided on our website at www.theworstdealpodcast.com. For our fifth episode, we sit down with James Morrow owner of Urban Kayaks, which provides kayak rentals and historical city tours on the Chicago River via kayak. My wife and I did this tour a few times and I can attest that it's pretty awesome. James's story is really interesting as we learn a bit about how a business came to be and some of the issues surrounding running a business on the Chicago River. So let's welcome James Morrow. All right, so I'm here with James Morrow, former ski instructor turned owner of Urban Kayaks, which has been operating kayak tours and rentals on the Chicago River for the past seven years. Good to have you with us, man. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. Funny, we're at my place right now, 30 floors up overlooking the Chicago River. And you mentioned earlier, it's like looking over your kingdom. Yeah, it's a nice view. I can see the river. I can see the lake. And... uh you know, I'm the president of the Chicago Harbor Safety Committee, so I deal with all of it. <laughs> I deal with all of it. Look at your kingdom. Yeah. All right. So again, you've been running Urban Kayak for about seven years. Tell me about your story leading up to that. Okay. I got out of college. I decided I never wanted to work in an office. Sort of made that decision before I got out of college. Went straight to New Zealand to do 10 weeks of on-snow ski instructor training. Uh, I got back from New Zealand and went straight into a job at Beaver Creek in Colorado. After working on the mountain for one year, sort of realized that there's a very limited upward mobility on the service side of things Mm -hmm. in in the industry that I was in sort of the outdoor recreation, you know, trip leader industry, you know, and sort of came back to Chicago and my best friend from high school, Aaron Gershenson, was running a kayak tour and rental business here in Chicago, which will tie into the story today, the name of which is called Water Riders. Went out with him, kind of worked part-time that first summer I was back home after being a ski instructor for one year, and went to him and said, you having a good time? Because we could do this ourselves a lot better than it's being done today. Not directly as a result of his mismanagement of the business, but you know, his hands were tied. He wasn't the owner, so it was kind of what it was. Mm. And he said, yeah, I'm having a good time. Let's give it a shot. So we roped his brother Asher into it as well. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like sat on his couch while he ran that company, writing the business plan, putting it all on paper. And we had the benefit of having access to the real data the existing business he was managing. So that's always an edge whenever you're putting a business plan together. If you can take a look at the real books from a real business, you know, it definitely helps understand exactly what your, you know, helps you set expectations for revenue and other things like that. Uh, It was really beneficial. And we went all together to be ski instructors that next winter and worked on it all winter, lived together, went through that whole roommate thing together and came back. We have a picture of us standing on the mountain in February when our attorney called and said, you guys have a business. Congratulations. Nice. And we came back and slogged our way through the permitting process and all the other things we had to do and opened doors of Urban Kayaks August 22nd, 2011, because we're crazy. Wow. (laughs) 
almost at the end of the uh, warm weather season in Chicago. Yeah, it was quite an interesting trajectory. We actually went up on Groupon the day we opened our doors. Okay. And this was back when there was one thing on Groupon. So we sold 1,600 tours the first eight hours we were open as a business. Wow. We had no computer system, no booking system. I was at home on the phone taking reservations by hand while Aaron and Asher were at the shop alone putting rentals on, you know, walk up, a couple walk up rentals here and there on the water, no scheduled tours that day. It was very chaotic and hectic and the three of us slogged our way through that first, <laughs> you know, couple months, but that Groupon deal, you know, we started the business, we got $30,000 in capital invested in us and mm-hmm. used my personal credit to leverage that into $100,000 worth of purchasing power. Mm-hmm. And we did we made $96,000 from that Groupon deal. Wow. So we basically paid for the startup of the business. Not everything you see there today, but what we had at the time, the 50 boats that we bought and you know all the other assets that we had, we covered all those costs in the first eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's absolutely crazy. And it really shows uh, the difference how businesses are utilizing Groupon when they first started. Because Groupon, it launched around 2010. Yeah, so we... We were an interesting test case for them because we had to convince them to run a deal with a company that had never operated a day. Right. And to put us up the day we opened for business. Right. And not only did we get them to do that, we called Living Social and called Groupon and gamed them against each other Mm -hmm. and actually leveraged Groupon into giving us a better rate than their standard entry rate. Mm -hmm. So we came in at a 60-40 split, which at the time they said they don't ever do. Right. So, uh, you know, I will give you everyone out there a quick hint about business. Anytime you're negotiating, there's always some wiggle room. Even with the biggest company, you know, they want revenue, they want money. They viewed kayaking as a hot ticket item. It was something that sold well the mm-hmm. year before, mm-hmm. uh, but our competitors only offered a very limited amount. And we said, look, just unload it. As much as you can sell, we can handle the volume between now and October. And if we can't get them in, we'll get them in the spring. So, you know, we convinced them that we were, we knew what we were doing, came in and the rest is history, sort of. There's a lot more to it, but. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great story. And it's nice, you know, you had someone that was managing, so it wasn't a complete shot in the dark in terms of operation. I'm assuming that you really had to go crazy getting some type of organization (laughs) for a booking system. It was, you know. Aaron had been doing this all by hand at Water Riders in the past. So wow. they didn't, I mean, you know, he gave them their first website. He gave them their Facebook page. He oversaw 200% growth in the three years he managed the business. Okay. So this was part of what, how I convinced Aaron to leave and go off on his own was I said, look, you're creating this value. You're right. building a business for somebody else. So let's not do that. Let's right. build a business for you. And let's not put you in a position where you're working for somebody and you're creating tons of value for them. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, that's true. There's so many people today that you see them creating a ridiculous amount of value. You see them being the asset that makes or break the company. And yet they're insistent on not being in charge of owning a company. Well, and I think Aaron was very reluctant. I mean, he's, you know, I was the driving force behind, let's do this ourselves. I was the one that said in the middle of August, we're putting this dock in, we're opening the doors, we're not gonna wait till next year, we're not gonna sit on these kayaks in storage and try and convince these guys we're gonna pay them back later. We're gonna do this. We're gonna finish what we started 
and open the doors and get on the water. And it was, you know, there were lots of fights because, you know, Aaron and Asher are a little bit sort of conservative in how they approach things from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, leveraging themselves, spending money, those kinds of things didn't come easy to them. And it was sort of part of what I brought to the table. Mm -hmm. So I I don't think I could have done it without them. And I'm not sure they ever would have even thought to do it without me. Right. There's so, got to be a little bit of crazy on board to make great things happen. I maybe am that crazy. So. <laughs> well, I, I feel like we're on the same wavelength there. So this is the Worst Deal Podcast, and it's fantastic what you guys have created over those last seven years. So, you know, what happened to you that you would consider to be a huge failure? You're going to love this. <laughs> so I got to set the stage a little bit here, give a little bit of context for the listeners. So as I mentioned, we got our start because Aaron was managing our competitor called Water Riders. And they launched at the time from the old Montgomery Ward building, the same building Groupon opened in. He actually negotiated. Part of what got us in the door at Groupon was that Aaron negotiated the first deal for Water Riders with Groupon the year before. Oh. So he was able to go to that rep and say, look, I'm starting my own thing, but we know what we're doing. Let's make it happen. Yeah. So that was sort of invaluable, that relationship. What ended up happening here is we splintered off. We started our own thing. And I'm a very aggressive business owner. And I understand that we're in a competitive marketplace. And that when you're dealing with an asset like the Chicago River, there's a limited amount of volume that it can support safely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And every independent brand is going to have its own amount of traction Mm -hmm. and catch its own sort of minimum level of volume. Mm -hmm. And our biggest competitor at the time was Kayak Chicago biggest player in the market, but they had the absolute worst operating location. So just to give the listeners even more context, we have the best operating location in the city. We're on the Chicago Riverwalk, right downtown, seven-minute walking distance from Navy Pier, five-minute walking distance from Michigan Avenue. Mm -hmm. We're in the thick of it. So we had this incredible opportunity to work with the city to build something that could really support a true volume, you know, high-volume business. Mm -hmm. And I view the volume that my competitors put on the water as a value equation, right? Every boat they put out there is one less coming to us. Right. So I very much wanted to sort of aggressively pursue beating them out of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And Aaron came out of, you know, left Charlie and kind of came out feeling like he did Charlie Portis a disservice and didn't want to be mean to him. Right. And so kind of held me back, like pulled on the reins for three years and said, please don't go after Charlie's business. Please don't go after his staff. Please don't. Because I I wanted to like move on all that stuff. I wanted to just be aggressive, get after it. Mm -hmm. I want to win. I want to control the marketplace. I want to control the price points. I want to control the volume. I want to control the safety. I want to control it all. Uh, I think we'd be in a much better position today if we had 100% of the river market to ourselves, Mm -hmm. not just because we'd be making a lot more money. I think it would work a lot better. It would be much more functional. And what you could do in terms of providing reduced price membership rates for locals and things like that would really increase your traffic and increase your... You could grow the total revenue coming in from all the businesses. Mm -hmm. So Aaron finally let me go. He said, okay. He kind of had a fight with Charlie Portis and said, I'm done being nice to him. I'm not going to do anything myself, but you're, you know, you are free, James, to do whatever you want. You released the change. So I, as a byproduct of the years I spent waiting around, Charlie Portis had negotiated a, a service agreement with East Bank Club. 
basically he provided sort of limited, you know, he was subcontracted by East Bank, his company, to provide limited tours and services to their members mm-hmm. because East Bank doesn't want to pay the insurance, right. yeah. you know, that, that you have to pay to, to put people on the water. So right. um, it's just cheaper for them to, to outsource that. They mm-hmm. own the dock. They owned the boats. But their members are basically paying for professional guides and professional services. The air quotes are not obviously in the in the podcast, but I made them. <laughs> so I called East Bank and I started trying to steal that contract away. And they sat down with me. They were very friendly. They seemed open to sort of negotiating and seeing if I, we would provide better value. You know, what I didn't really know at the time was that someone in that management side at East Bank is sort of buddy buddies with Charlie Portis. Mm. And I think they were listening to me to understand the value of their asset, but also to sort of assist Charlie and not, I don't think they were like silently talking to me. I think they were sharing the content of those discussions with Charlie Portis. So Charlie's main operation, as I mentioned, launched from the old Montgomery Ward building at the south end of Goose Island. So he had this second best sort of static launch location as a business goes. And in the fall of 2015, Jason De Palma, who manages that dock, actually bought out all the management rights to the to the dock there. You know, he runs Vantage Yachts. He and, does electric boat rentals and other things. And just for a little bit of perspective, if you're not from Chicago, Montgomery Ward Building, Goose Island, that's sort of the end of what would be considered high traffic, or I guess the touristy spot of the Chicago River. Yeah. Definitely. It's the north end of, of the sort of, yeah, it's where the tour boats turn around, right. basically, when they go north. So that's a that's a good point. And Jason De Palma basically bought out the management rights and had a big fight with Charlie Portis. Now, if you go and ask Charlie Portis, I'm sure he'll tell you that I orchestrated this entire thing <laughs> in my own head and that I had somehow made some attempt to do this all on my own, but it actually fell into my lap. So on a Thursday in November... Jason De Palma calls me and says, hey, we'd talked once before, very briefly. It was sort of a, he called me and I think he was just feeling me out. And he called me and said, hey, just had a big fight with Charlie Portis. Guy doesn't want, you know, he's basically been on a free ride at this dock for years because no one's been managing it. I tried to get him to start paying standard commercial rates for the dock space he's using for his operation. And he kind of, you know, blew me off and said, no way. So I want to know if you want it. So here I am thinking... Okay, I can, for the cost of purchasing his access, put him out of business. It's a lot cheaper than buying him. It's a lot cheaper than buying his website and his equipment and his corporate entity and all that other stuff. Right. You know, beautiful deal. So Jason and I talk and he goes, you know, just out of sort of standard business practice, like, okay, I've made an offer. I'll pay X. Mm Mm-hmm. He goes, I'm going to take that to Charlie and see if he's willing to pay it. And if he's not, it's yours. And I, you know, part of this was Charlie has a, he has like a a weird commercial lot that sits between the building and the parking garage that's attached to the building. Hmm. And it's a great space to house kayaks. It's all concrete, you know, weird. It's just weird, right? It's not built out. It's not office space. It's kind of like a storage area, storage area almost, but it's frontage. It's dynamically almost perfect for what he's using it for. Mm-hmm. And Jason De Palma thought that in his absorbing the dock, he actually absorbed that commercial space too. Mm. So part of our deal was we get that space. I mean, that was part of what I was paying for. Right. And the whole idea was I'm going to displace this guy. I'm gonna, he's not going to have anywhere to put his kayaks. He's not going to have a launch point. He's out of business. 
unless he wants to really go scrounging for a way worse situation. So Jason De Palma and I ink that deal. I sign a $22,000 deal. I give him $2,000 down payment. Mm-hmm. I say, let me know when I can take the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is probably in late November, early December of, of 2015. Of 2015. So I then turn around and call East Bank and say, hey, <laughs> you know, I, it looks like, you know, you're current service provider is probably going to have a hard time providing just limited services to you because he's not going to have a business supporting the staff and the other things that he's going to need to do that you know we'd love to have a discussion about what this looks like and the east bank guy kind of laughed and said yeah you know we sort of figured there was going to be some shuffling going on and i said well call me when you're ready to to talk and one of the things that I had floated by him was doing some limited hybrid servicing the general public from that location uh, I never really wanted to increase the boat volume there I just wanted to provide an access point for our members mm-hmm. to get on the water too so if you live in River North you can get on the water there you can get off the water at any of our locations we'll move the boats around you know sort of we were growing at the time we had the location in chinatown and we were thinking okay we'll have all three branches of the river we'll have access points everywhere and then so chinatown at the south end where the boat turn around on the south end basically yeah there it's actually a little further than where the boats turn around on the (laughs) south end so it's not the chinatown is a whole nother that's a whole nother discussion it probably could have been the topic of this story it's probably equally as as complex, but this one this one takes takes the case. So I sign this deal. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I call them back in the spring, and they say no, we're good with our current service provider. And I say I send an email that says, well, I don't really understand that mm-hmm. because the last time we spoke, you just wanted your dock to be exclusive access for your members, and you know you said you didn't want to service the general public here. And they also, as just as a side note, when they applied for their dock. They did it in 2011 at the same time as us. They installed their dock, but without applying. So they were processed as a processed as a violator. Mm. And as a part of their public negotiations, like they had to they had to do public feedback and like explain what they were going to use the the dock for. And and the Coast Guard and the Army Corps, it's a federal waterway, so it's federal, state, and city permits. And they had to basically say, basically describe what they were going to do from that location. And they said the bullet points. We will not service the general public. We will not do rentals. We will not do large tour groups. This is a private dock for our members, private access, limited engagement, Mm -hmm. low volume, won't be a hazard. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, as a byproduct of my incredible deal and maneuvering that was going to basically bring us a couple hundred thousand more dollars worth of revenue because we were going to absorb that location and take a competitor off the water, mm-hmm. Charlie Portis, he must have gone begging on his hands and knees to East Bank and begged them to let him run his entire business from their location. So as a byproduct of what I did, he ended up moving his entire operation to a much closer location to downtown. Right. And he has found a reasonable amount of success launching the the general public from that location. And he's putting more boats on the water than he ever has. His business is bigger than it's ever been. He's got a couple of good kids who understand what we're doing and Mm -hmm. are 
doing their best to copy it mm-hmm. on almost every level. So they got him to upgrade his website. They got him to redo a bunch of things, buy some new equipment, you know, and it's all very superficial, right? You can tell they don't really understand why we do things the way we do. None of these guys have professional kayaking credentials. You know, they bought new life vests, but they didn't buy tow life vests that are like a guide would use. They bought just fancy life vests. So they, they're not really functional for, you know, providing high-end guide services. Um, you know, they do thing a lot of things the wrong way because they don't have professional training. Mm-hmm. But you can tell what they're trying to accomplish is mimic us in, in, in sort of this very broad, superficial way. Mm-hmm. And it's working. They're getting good reviews. They're putting tons of people on the water. So the unintended consequences of my incredible business negotiations were that we really gave them a, a big leg up. And it was quite unfortunate. Yeah. So have, have you guys lost market share overall as a result of... No. So we, you know, the Riverwalk, they, the city borrowed $100 million to redo the Riverwalk. And mm-hmm. they opened the first new sections of that and started actually marketing the Riverwalk and mm-hmm. touting it as a tourist attraction in 2015. Okay. And we saw basically a 40% jump in revenue. Wow between 2014 and 2015 and it's been trending upwards ever since okay so as the river walk becomes even more of a commercial attraction mm-hmm. the better we do because they're still building out the river wall uh they're done yeah. they're done um they're done with all the renovations and they're now they're working on contracts we're working on our renewal contract right now we're in the last phase of it we're waiting on the city to make a decision basically okay so uh, we're excited about the things we have coming. We're trying to do some cool stuff down there that's not just kayaking. Mm-hmm. So that'll be fun. Always growing, always getting bigger. That's the goal. But, you know, our location really is that much better than everybody else's. And, you know, that's the other part of it. East Bank's dock wasn't built for large-scale commercial operations. So mm-hmm. what they're doing is difficult. It's hard to put that many people on the water from a facility that wasn't designed or built or created for that purpose. Right. And they've crammed a lot of boats into a very small amount of space. And there, I give the employees working there a lot of credit because Charlie Portis is not working there, right? Okay. He's not, hasn't been functionally running the business and being, you know, he's every once in a while he's out there when he has to be, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, funny to see him on the river because he kind of like scrambles around and you know isn't the calmest person in the world but it you know the the kids who are working there are working hard and they're they're doing the best they can with what they have Mm -hmm. and they deserve lots of credit for that but it wasn't built for it right and what we're doing over here we're i mean we went from one 20-foot container and a bunch of rent defense to, to eight you know shipping containers We've got a very fancy launch dock designed for high volume commercial use. You know, we've got a, a safety video theater that we built just to show all our rentals up, up safety video that we produced specific to this waterway. Um, you know, the things we're doing, we're doing with direct intent mm-hmm. and not just sort of forcing, you know, a ton of business through, you know, a tiny little wooden dock that was never made to do that so you know they have limitations and they can only do so much right and they're dependent on Groupon still I would say 60 to 70 percent of their volume comes from Groupon and I know what those numbers look like it's not pretty they have 19 employees now 
I know what those payroll numbers look like. But it's not pretty when you're, you know, selling your product and they're, you know, I don't give Charlie a ton of credit. I wouldn't shock me if he was still paying Groupon 30, 40%. Okay. It wouldn't shock me. Now, it would, wouldn't shock me if he was down to 15 or 10, but, you know, still, you cut your product price in half, you give away even 15% of it, those numbers are bleak. But And then that's the sad part is we could be capturing that volume at full price. Mm-hmm. If they weren't, if our competitors weren't dumping it onto the marketplace mm-hmm. at you know massively reduced rates, I think half of those people would suck it up and pay because they want to do it. They just go shopping on their phones. They walk. I mean, I get people walk up to our desk and they're like, "Let's see if it's on Groupon." And I kind of sit there laughing, like, "You're not gonna find us on Groupon anymore." Yeah. I tried that squeeze too. I tried to call Groupon and say, "Look." You're about to lose me as a client. I'm your highest volume service provider. I have the best location, the best operation, the best reviews. I want to be your only kayak option. Oh, okay. And they said, no, we don't do that. We're a marketplace. We're open to everybody. And I said, so you're going to lose your number one client in the space to keep your two and three clients when I can guarantee I can service the same number of of tickets that all three combined are currently servicing. Mm-hmm. And they went that direction. And I said, goodbye. Okay. So Sometimes you got to do that. Yeah. Sometimes and and we've never made more money. I mean, the, the year we stopped servicing Groupons was the highest revenue year we'd ever had. Okay. Good. Because so. it forces you to be a bit more creative in some other ways. It eliminates some of the uh, revenue shortfall that you're going to have as a result of servicing yeah. Groupons. So, good. So that is sort of a crazy story. You know, you go into this with a lot of confidence. Things you're going to put the guy out of business. I, I was calling my business partners, jumping up and down, ecstatic, telling them, don't even worry about the $20,000 contract. It's a <laughs> nothing burger relative to the, to the revenue we're going to get as a result. But, um, I said, well, we don't even have to put one boat on the water there. We can just buy it out and squat. Right. And force everybody through the Riverwalk location. Mm. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't really a play to open. You know, we were going to put some boats there and service members and things. Mm-hmm. That was really the goal was to just have the access point, mm-hmm. um, and not really pump tours and high priced volume out of there. Mm-hmm. Just sort of okay. We've now gotten rid of everything even close to downtown, so now you have to come to us. Right. And it didn't work out. And I, you know, I got my money back because. Jason probably could have held me to that contract had we not included a clause about the office space that Charlie occupies right. being a part of that deal. Mm-hmm. And when he actually went to the building and found out that he did not, in fact, own that space, I said, look, I, without anywhere to put boats, right. yeah. <laughs> I can't so you take out this from you. Um, I think he probably would have let me out of it anyway just because the circumstances were sort of what they were and he's a nice guy and he really honestly he called me because he had a fight with Charlie so I think he he sort of he almost did it just as a dig right he was like angry that Charlie after being there for 10 years basically for free couldn't pony up you know fair pricing I'm he wasn't trying to gouge the guy he just wanted him to pay per linear foot what he charges anyone else who wants to park their yacht or boat or whatever there right and to be honest you know, it's less than what I'm paying the city. It's a lot less than what I'm paying the city. Right. So. Gotta be. <laughs> yeah. Gotta be. Okay. So, you know, um, what I've been asking everyone, 
what are three things that you might have done differently if you encountered that, if you were going about that same uh, deal again? I would have approached East Bank Club differently. Mm-hmm. If I could go back in time, I would have done a lot less talking about what we could do and how I could change the dynamics there and all this other stuff. And I would have just gone in with a, with a fixed number and said, look, I'll just pay you to manage your asset and I'll give free, I'll let York members use your boats for free. Mm-hmm. I'll give them massively discounted pricing on tours and I'll cut you a check at the start of every year. I would have made an offer like that. Right. Instead of going in and saying, you know, we can start providing some limited services to the general public and I'll give you a percentage. And, you know, it was I, I really was treating it as a very sort of open-ended thing mm-hmm. instead of coming in and giving them an offer so good that it n- no longer made sense to continue working with Charlie. And part of what happened is because I talked to them, then bought out Charlie's contract, and then he had time to go talk to them and beg them for stuff. Right. I would have really liked to have gotten the East Bank contract first. Right. So that Charlie didn't have that out. Right. And that was a mistake that I made, was not playing those cards in the right order. Mm-hmm. So that was one. The second big lesson is you really have to expand you know, your perception of what the potential consequences can be. I mean, I really didn't see a losing situation. I couldn't foresee in my mind a way in which this could be regressive or negative for us. And I acted very impulsively as a result of that. And I didn't take enough time to carefully consider that potential consequence. Now, I'm not saying I would have come to a different conclusion had I taken my time, Mm -hmm. but I didn't. I very much didn't. (laughs) I think the third lesson is... Oh, what's the third lesson? <laughs> I probably learned way more than three. So lesson one is, you know, approach you think differently. Lesson two is explore, broaden the possibilities as to what... You know, what, don't, yeah, don't just think about the benefits to you. Think about the potential consequences and, and apply those to your decision-making process. Because yeah. I, I, I was, uh, literally, I was just on this... Is there any way that you could have known about that in between base that wasn't owned you know jason told me he owned it so i i sort of assumed he knew what he was you know he owned he was the manager of that dock and he absorbed some offices there and i figured he knew what was in his contract um and i think he really genuinely thought it was his you know he he kind of said i'm sorry you know no no harm no foul like you know wasn't trying to trick you into anything really thought it was mine third lesson I'm just trying to think of one that like the listeners can take as, as pot, real real feedback and not just some shallow. Okay, I guess the third lesson is just be mindful of the impact you're going to be making on the other party. You know, the the relationship between the kayak companies on the river is not very good right now because, you know, we're competing. Right. We're, we're doing it with great intent. And our, the two companies we're competing against were out there for, for 10 and 12 years respectively before us. Right. So they had a big head start and they, you know, they've really been the big losers here. And we haven't treated them. You know, they were pioneers. They, they did this before anyone thought it could be a thing. Right. And we kind of came in and swooped it. So as a part of this process, I, I never really treated them with much respect. Mm-hmm. And, you know... We don't really harbor a lot of resentment because we're so successful, 
but you know our our competitors their employees don't like us because their bosses talk negatively about us right it's a cultural issue within both of those companies that comes top down and you know i in particular have had opportunities to to work with them and engage with them in ways that could have been communally and collectively positive mm-hmm. and this was another example of just sort of not caring at all about their outcomes mm-hmm. and the negative impact that's had on how we work together on the waterway how we communicate when our tour groups are passing by and 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 whether or not our guides or their guides come help in situations where it's relevant. Right. You know, those things are meaningful. And we don't have any support from them in situations where we could use it. Not that we're not taking care of our own. I mean, we're providing them with significantly more support than they're providing us. Right. But, and I mean that in a very real sense. Like, we got a jet ski out there on patrol. We've pulled, I mean, I don't have the incident reports in front of me, but at least 15 kayakers from those two companies collectively this year out of the water. And they don't have anything like that. They don't have a contingency whatsoever. Okay. Um, So we really do provide a lot of functional stability to the commercial kayaking market. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of things we're not legally obligated to do. We go above and beyond for safety and Mm -hmm. supervision. Mm -hmm. But we don't get anything back from them like that in a positive way because we haven't made genuine efforts to engage positively with them and work with them okay do you feel like that's something that uh you know you might pull in the future or is it it is it what it is it's interesting because i'm i was the human powered craft sector representative for the harbor safety committee before i became the president mm-hmm. and the previous president one of the things he did was spearhead the creation of you know sort of a best practices document for every sector and industry mm-hmm. and this was a couple of years ago so this was in 20, 2015 Okay. Um, that it was written in 2016 it was ratified and I basically wrote those rules for our sector by myself and they were invited to the table okay so I you know too late I tried to fold them in and kind of got the middle finger you know like the proverbial like forget you we've been out here for you know close to 20 years at this point we don't need you or anyone else to tell us how to operate. They do, just as a matter of clarification. They need a lot of help. But but they didn't sit down to the table. And they, you know, I tried to balance the high standard we carry for our business with what they could be expected to, to be commercially viable. Right. You know, I tried to find a middle ground. I didn't write my standards and practices. I wrote something that sat between what I thought the bottom of the barrel of their worst day is mm-hmm. and our best day. And came to the middle. And they don't abide by those guidelines. They're member organizations, but they're not in compliance with, you know, the Harbor Safety Committee's document. And I know why. It's because I wrote it. And why would they bend over and, you know, succumb to, you know, some force-fed volume limit stuff and guide to boat ratios? And, you know, I mean, Mike Dave Olson, the owner of Kayak Chicago, called... Michael Borgstrom, the president, after I wrote the rules and was trying to negotiate with him. Mm-hmm. And Michael said, why didn't you show up at the meeting and put your input in and have those numbers changed? Like, you know, 
I hosted a meeting. I invited them. They got the emails. They're not totally entitled to say that they didn't have an opportunity to impact those documents. Right. But because the relationship was so Joined. abhorrent, you know, they didn't want to show up. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Yeah, so that's definitely uh, something that I wouldn't say is a regret of yours. You don't seem like the type of guy that regrets. Well, it's just, it's unfortunate because I think it was a real opportunity to fold them into better practices. And it doesn't, you know, what they do impacts and is reflected in the sort of total industry. You know, we get folded into the bad with the kayaks, right? Right. And I have to put those fires out sometimes when it's not us, but people think it is. Right. So, you know, it's complicated because you really want, you want everyone to look good so that the industry looks good. Mm-hmm. Because if, you know, God forbid something really bad were to happen, you want to say, look, these guys were following best practices you know they were they were in the fold and and they're doing a good job and and I don't know if right now today if one of their kayakers got hit I could say that right and I don't think that's a ref, that's a positive reflection on collectively us as an industry right, right. You know, whether or not that's really bad for me <laughs> is a subject to a whole other discussion but you know ultimately I think we want the industry to be successful. But we don't, you know, we want to find success, but we want, we don't want to put anyone in a position where they're tarnishing anyone's perception of what's going on in general. Right. Right. Okay. Well, you know, with that, we'll sort of wrap up. You know, it had been great having you on. I, I appreciate that honesty and candor in your story. That's, uh, you really went in depth and that's, that's great. To so- go on for days. <laughs> to go on for days. Yeah. And, you know, we will. You know, outside the confines of time limit here. But, you know, the main thing is for people that want to learn more about kayaking in Chicago, uh, where would they go? UrbanKayaks.com. You can check out the Chicago Harbor Safety Committee website as well. The Chicago Harbor Safety Committee just produced this year, We pro- not me personally, but some of the, the folks working and, and you know, who are on the board um, helped produce a water-wide video sort of based on our video concept. They produced one for the whole Chicago Harbor system. Mm. So there's a lot of really good information about the lake and the river and the harbors. So mm. no matter where you're kayaking in the city, there's a lot of useful information about how the traffic works and all that kind of stuff that's really valuable uh, mm-hmm. for safety reasons. So that's a definite plug. And then obviously you can visit our website, urbankayaks.com. Check it out. If you Google kayak in Chicago and you click on the images, most of them will be of us. Okay. So um, lots, lots of good ways to find cool stuff going on. Yeah. You know, we're on Instagram and, you know, all that other stuff too. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty easy to recognize your boat. My wife and I did a tour before we even knew you were the owner of it, actually, even though we went to high school together and I should have known that. But, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great tour. We had a great guide. We had the guy that sort of looked like John Patrick Twayze. Oh, uh, he doesn't work with us anymore. Oh, okay. I know who you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. I saw him working somewhere else. But. So long story short, they have the neon green boat 
they're the easiest to see and they're really cool. Uh, I'll put in the resources for this post your site as well as uh, the association you're a part of. And uh, other than that, I, I know you're pretty busy. Got some other projects going on that I know you're pretty excited about. It's a stacking pile. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, again, you know, James, it's been fantastic having you on. And have a good uh, Labor Day weekend coming up. Thank you. You're welcome.